Well, good morning. Uh, if we have not met yet, my name is Ryan Doucette, and I'm the youth pastor here at 26 West Church. Uh, for those joining online, hello and welcome. I want to just offer a, a special hello to my uh, grandfather and parents that are uh, tuning in online this morning from down in Las Vegas. This week, my grandmother went to be with Jesus. So you can also keep uh, just our family in your prayers as well as Jose's. But um, I'm just grateful that they can tune in this morning and just want to say hello and, and I love you. Uh, well, friends, here we are, just one week away from Christmas. And let me ask you, how many of you have all of your gifts taken care of? Just show me your hands. That's pretty good. Now, how many of you still have some shopping left to do? <laughs> well, uh, over the last three weeks, we've come together as a community to celebrate Advent, which is the coming of Jesus. Uh, this is a tradition that has been observed by the church for hundreds of years. And we've been studying together the traditional themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and this morning we'll look at love. Now love is absolutely central to the Christian faith. You cannot preach the gospel without it. You cannot read the scriptures without encountering it. And you cannot truly follow Jesus unless you do so with love. Now lucky for me, because I was put on the teaching schedule several weeks ago, I've had lots of time to compile notes and thoughts for today. And so in the next 45 minutes, I'm going to completely unveil and untangle all the mysteries and complexities <laughs> of love. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> Look, in my preparation for this, I actually was really overwhelmed with the amount of material we see in the scriptures about love, uh, specifically the New Testament. I mean, I could just sit here and read to you the passages that contain the word love in them and not common at all, and we wouldn't even scratch the surface in today's time. So what I hope to do is this. I, I want us to see a key aspect of the biblical vision for love against the backdrop of a world that still seems to misunderstand it today. So let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit here this morning. Father, I just ask that you would come now by the power of your Spirit, that we would hear from you, myself included. I sit under this teaching, God, and say, would you speak to us? Would you give us the words, the things that we need to walk away with today in order to grow in our love of you and our love for others? So Holy Spirit, come, God, have your way. Would your will be done this morning? Amen. On December 10th, 1905, a fictional story ran in the New York Sunday World newspaper. It told the story of a couple struggling to make ends meet, yet selling their most prized possession in order to buy a gift for the other. The wife had her beautiful long hair cut and sold so she could purchase a gold watch chain, which would replace the tattered leather strap her husband used for his watch. Unbeknown to her, the husband had sold his gold watch in order to purchase a beautiful set of combs for his wife's hair. <laughs> Perhaps you are familiar with this famous story uh, by O. Henry. It's considered comic irony. But let me read you the final lines of this story. 
And here I have told you the story of two children who were not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing they owned in order to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts, these two were the most wise. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the most wise. Everywhere they are the wise ones. They are the magi. His story was called the gifts of the magi. And so this morning, I want to focus and and look at one of, I think, an often overlooked story in the Christmas narrative, the story of the Magi and their visit to Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. So let's open up our scriptures today. You can turn with me to Matthew 2. Uh, I'm not going to have all the words on the screen. Instead, if you have your scripture open, I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. Uh, Otherwise, just close your eyes and I'll read the story for us. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." Now, the story of the Magi is both mysterious and miraculous. It's mysterious because we really know very little about them. There's very little in the text that tells us about them. Uh, The New Testament, which is written in ancient Greek, uses a very rare word to describe them. That word is magos. It's where we get our English word for magic. And the only New Testament references to use this word outside of this story, the Magi, are found in Acts. And it's when we see a couple instances of encounters with magicians or sorcerers who are practicing a more common form of magic, more as a a trade for profits. However, in the Old Testament, we get some more clues about who these Magi might be. Uh, The Magos in the Old Testament are typically found in the court of kings. 
Um, we see them, uh, for instance, in Exodus. Pharaoh calls the Magos to come and try and replicate the same miracles that um, uh, Moses is performing, these plagues. And they're able to, to copy one or two, but then they start to fail. But another famous instance is in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who had captured the Jerusalem people, the Jewish people, and, and brought them into captivity. In Daniel 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar summon the Magos in his court in order to help him uncover the meaning of a mysterious dream. And so because of this instance, some scholars believe that the Magos, these Magi, who have, quote, come from the east, may have traveled from Babylon. Now, even their number, we don't know for certain. Now, you may be thinking, but I have this beautiful manger set at home with three magi, and Ryan, what are you doing? Don't destroy my, my set. Um, we just don't know. Um, in, in Eastern tradition, there's 12 magi. Um, and as I mentioned, in your standard manger set based off the Western tradition, there's three, and that's mainly been done with a connection to the three gifts. All we know for certain is that there's more than one. It's a, a plural noun that's used. And so you can see there's a lot of, of mystery in this story of who these guys were, where they come from. But there's also a miraculous aspect to this story, there's the miraculous revelation of God in three different ways. First, they've responded to what me, might be described as a miraculous revelation of God in the star. Notice how it's said in that text, it comes and it moves and then it, it centers right over where Jesus is. Uh, we know from Psalm 19 verse 1 that God does this. It says, the, the heavens declare of the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And so in response to this revelation in the skies, the Magi then responded by turning to another form of God's revelation, the scriptures. They look in the scripture, and, and if these Magi are indeed from Babylon, uh, they likely had access to the scriptures as, as brought over and handed down by Daniel. They seemingly understood that this miraculous star was a sign of a well-known messianic prophecy from Numbers 24. It says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And then all of this leads these magi to stand before the revelation of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And so they appear before the family where they bow down and they worship him. And they open their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So let me ask you this question. Do the Magi love Jesus? Maybe. That's good. <laughs> that's, a safe, that's a safe answer. <laughs> I want to suggest to you this morning they do. And, and how do we know? I want us this morning to see that there's a strong connection between the biblical concept of love and a gift. Love is found in a gift. What is a gift? The uh, Oxford Languages Dictionary, it's always good to get Oxford. I know I'm certain if I give you a definition with Oxford in it, right? The Oxford Languages Dictionary defines gift as a thing given willingly to someone without payment, a present, a Christmas gift. 
Now, while there isn't consensus on this, there is certainly some amount of influence on modern-day gift-giving that comes from the story of the Magi and their gifts. The gift, the very act itself, contains within it a very noble truth. It's given willingly to someone without expecting something in return. The very idea is that my concern in giving a gift is not on myself, but it's focused on another. And so at the climax of the story, these brave magi, they opened their treasures and they presented Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In fact, here's, it's not in my notes, but it's a bonus just for you this morning. (laughs) Some scholars believe these gifts afforded Joseph and Mary the ability to escape and flee to Egypt. If you know the story well, Herod presents this edict as a jealous king, and he issues an edict that anyone, any male baby under the age of two be killed. And so Joseph and Mary flee, but they're poor. This is a 700-plus mile journey from Bethlehem to Egypt. And some believe that the only way that this journey is possible is with these gifts. And if these magi have indeed come from Babylon, they've traveled a treacherous 900-mile, 120-day journey. And that's just one way. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they decide the best way to find a king is, well, apparently to ask another king. Uh, But this turns out to be a bad idea. Herod is the local ruler who's been installed by Rome. And, And the Magi come to him and they're suggesting, hey, there's another king that's been born here. And uh, this is actually a pretty dangerous move. You get the story that I just mentioned, what Herod issues, this edict. Uh, I'll sum it up in in Matthew 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And so they're going to this king to find out information. This is really dangerous. And yet these Magi have chosen to overcome all of this based on a star in the sky and maybe a single verse in the scriptures, only to find an impoverished couple living in a shack nursing a baby. Yet their response is that they bow down in worship and they present him with gifts. I want to suggest to you that love is found in their sacrificial journey And it's found in the presentation of these gifts. And this act of love, we all know it's in response to another gift, the gift of the Son. The greatest gift known to humankind is the gift of the Son, Jesus. What's the most well-known verse of all time? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. In fact, John the disciple has much to teach us about love. He actually chooses to identify himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's commenting on this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, and he writes the famous line, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now I want you to catch something here. It's a close reading of this verse. God, in an act of love, he gave his one and only son. The son is a gift given, as it says in verse 17, right after this, to save the world. In fact, there's a famous prophecy that that alludes to this. Um, We hear it all the time quoted during the Advent season. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the child is born, the son is given. The son of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal existence and relationship. The son who is the incarnate word present at the beginning of creation is given as a gift by the father for the sake of all humanity. A child is born, but the son is given. What we consistently see in the scriptures is that love is found in the gift. And so, if that's the case, love isn't just a feeling, it's an action. Love is found in action. Love requires action. Now, does love contain feelings? Absolutely. God feels towards us, and he demonstrates that by acting and giving us the Son. But as we attempt to follow Jesus in the 21st century, we are constantly engaged in a war of ideas with one of the forefront battles being over the meaning of love. We cannot afford to reduce love merely to feelings. So I want to unpack what what do we see in the scriptures, specifically the New Testament around love. You've you've maybe heard the quip. It's something that I feel like Christians often come back with when we want to um, sort of debate or or respond to the the fact that we we reduce love to a feeling in the 21st century. We might say something like, well, the Bible has four words to describe love. How many of you have heard that before, right? That's actually wrong. (laughs) It's close. I, we, what I want to uh, help us, I want us to learn something this morning. Um, in ancient Greek, the language of the New Testament, there are indeed four words for love. This is a true thing. Uh, and I have them on the screen here. We're going to learn some, some ancient Greek. Are you ready? The first is agapao. Say it with me now. Agapao. <laughs> <laughs> you notice the accent is over the A, so you have to say agapao. That's where you, sorry. Okay, let's move on. The, the second is philos. Say with me, philos. The third, storge. And the final, eros. Now, what um, has not always been taught, in fact, I'll admit, this was even new to me. I was like, oh, wait, what? They're not all four there. Um, eros is never used in the New Testament. So eros is a Greek uh, word that used to describe an attraction or a sexual type of love, but the New Testament writers never use the word once. And storge, which is a natural affection type of love, it's used literally two times, two verses. 
And then I wanted you to see, I, I put a picture here. So the other two, agapao and phylos, philos, are the key words used for love in the New Testament. But agapao shows up almost five times as much as philos. And really is the primary word used in the most important passages and predominantly in all passages in the New Testament. And so when we're talking about what love is, um, let our retort or our response to that not be like, well, there's four words for love in Greek and, and we need to make sure we're using the appropriate one. No, what we need is to truly understand what is the Bible telling us about love? And how does that play out into our everyday life? How do we live that out today? And, and so I'm going to suggest we look at agapao and that type of love. So I'm going to give you a definition you're, when you're ready. This is something to, to write down, to capture in your notes this morning. A good definition for this word is to have a warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish, have affection for, to love. In this definition, we see there is a feeling. I have a regard for another. And, and there's a, a desired action. I, I take action um, looking out for the interest. And, and that interest is found in another. It's, it's found in another object. It's found outside of ourselves. It's in the other. The interest isn't that I, um, I find them interesting, <laughs> The interest is that I'm actively looking out for their interest. The Bible Project uh, has a great definition for this love. It says, for Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. I'll give a great plug. This came from, this was a quote from their video uh, they did an Advent series and made a short video on each of the themes of Advent. And so if you're interested in going a little bit deeper, having something that's a little bit easier to digest, you can go and check those out. Uh, but I love that. For Jesus, love is action. And in the scriptures, the New Testament author who writes far more than any other about love is John. As I mentioned, he, he identifies himself as the one that Jesus loved. And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than when you get scripture with such clarity. So, John, how could we possibly know what love is? Well, he tells us in 1 John 3.16. So if you remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world, if you want more on love, just go to 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. How do we know this? Jesus Christ laid down his life for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love requires action. Jesus could have been moved in his feelings and yet not laid down his life, and we would be the most pitied of people. <laughs> you might be moved and see someone in need and yet not help, and the scripture says, how could the love of God be in that person? And John, of course, most famously goes on to say this in 1 John 4, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Like a gift, at the root of this love is an action for the benefit of another. In fact, not only are we at war with what love means, the very nature of love is also under attack. One of the greatest deterrents of love is not hate, it's selfishness. This really struck me as I'm preparing that one of the greatest deterrents of love is not hate, it's selfishness. In all the instances we've looked at so far, what we see is the necessity for love to be action and for that action to be for the benefit of another. But we ourselves often get in the way. One of my observations about love is that it almost always, if not always, requires me to be inconvenienced. And we just simply don't like that. (laughs) Uh, Paul, in uh, one of his letters to a young aspiring leader named Timothy, he warns this. He says, There will be terrible times in the last days. Terrible times. How does he describe these terrible times? People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Ouch. (laughs) The terrible times in these last days begins with people being lovers of themselves. And, you know, it's not hard to see this, right? It's not hard to look around and and see the struggle today as individualism. It's the air we breathe. We think about how something might impact me rather than how it will impact us or the people around us. And as the church, I think we must confess that we are not immune to this. Jesus came and he, and he completely flipped any idea of love on its head. And so often he spoke about a a radical kind of love that looked very different than what was seen in the pervading culture. Jesus both modeled and taught in the form of being focused on others, not on ourselves. In Matthew 5, he, he teaches so radically this concept. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. What would the penultimate version of this love look like? Love that is not just focused on others, but is also focused on those who you would consider an enemy. Preston Spreekle, a a New Testament scholar and host of a well-known podcast called Theology in the Raw, he wrote a story ahead of the publication uh, for his book entitled Nonviolence, 
And he was saying that Jesus, uh, this command to love your enemies, it was actually the most popular verse in the early church. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of Christianity, and that makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. So this Matthew 5 verse 44 was the so-called John 3.16 of the early church. And enemy love was the hallmark of Christian faith. What would it look like for a community of Jesus followers to radically embody this today? What would it look like for our community to embody this kind of love? Action found in the benefit of others, even our enemies. And so as we wind down this morning now. I just want to move into a space where we sort of self-reflect on, like, how are we doing at this? Um, with all of that in mind, we, of course, have to come to the greatest command. The command, the greatest commands of the Christian faith, the, the command we're required to obey as followers of Jesus is to love. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, pop quiz, which is the most important? To even ask the question means we don't yet understand. (laughs) The point that Jesus seems to be making is that our love for God will be expressed by our love for people and vice versa. They are inseparable. Frederick Dale Bruner is one of the, if not most, renowned expert on the book of Matthew. He's written the best commentary by any scholar. And he said this quote because some people uh, wrestle with this concept. They're like, well, surely we can't replace love of God with people. But he says, only together in a nurturing mutuality is either love kept pure. And I, I, I'm there. I love that. If these two are inseparable, then our love of neighbor is a direct reflection of our love for God. And while the definition of neighbor, as we read it in the scriptures, can seem fuzzy, I just want us to remember the story of the Good Samaritan and suggest to you that what Jesus is teaching in that passage is that there isn't anyone that you will come into contact who is not your neighbor. But maybe what's helpful for us this morning is that perhaps a great place for us to revisit is our literal neighbor. <laughs> Who are the people that live on each side of you, across the street from you? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories, their pain, their hopes, their dreams? How can we love our enemies if we can't even love our next door neighbor? Um, This summer, I deeply offended 
my next door neighbor. I, uh, I trimmed back a holly tree that extended onto my side of the property. <laughs> I was being pretty selfish because this holly tree really bothered me. Uh, it was in the way of me accessing my travel trailer, in, in my opinion. <laughs> and, um, you know, what's fascinating is like the law is on my side. But by law, I have the legal right. Anything that's protruding over the property line, I can tr- trim down. And I almost took a picture for you to see <laughs> this morning. I, I, I really, I hacked this tree in half. <laughs> the half that was on my side, I was like, we're done. <laughs> and... Um, and, and although I had the legal right to do this, I was severely lacking in love of my neighbor. And she was heartbroken. Um, she came and, you know, she was concerned that my hack job would kill this, you know, beloved holly tree of hers. And, and I want to confess to you, I failed at loving my neighbor and I felt terrible. And you better believe that would impact my love for God. How could I not love this neighbor next to me and consult her and, and make sure that was okay and work with her to figure out how much I could trim back and make sure she felt good about that? Now, thankfully, my wife demonstrated love for our neighbor by making them a fresh loaf of sourdough bread. And I, too, deeply apologized to my neighbor and, and hope to continue to rebuild that relationship of trust. I'm going to invite the band to come back as we just get ready to, to worship again through song. But, you know, what could our neighborhoods, our communities, our city, what could our world look like if we practiced a love demonstrated in action for the benefit and care of others? Uh, this week, uh, I'm proud to be a part of our youth Uh, The students and the families who sacrificed buying white elephant gifts and ugly Christmas sweaters to instead put those funds towards a a Christmas toy drive for local families in need. And uh, I have a picture here. We we filled this tree with love, with gifts uh, focused on the other the person in need in our city, the the students and families in uh, the local school district who cannot buy gifts. Um, It's really neat to be a part of that and to celebrate together with our crew. Uh, One last verse, a key verse uh, for the book, the final book of the Bible, Revelation. It describes the defeat of Satan and evil But it says this, and I I loved how this kind of ties things together here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, this is how Satan's defeated. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink even from death. This is the radical, world-transforming love ushered into the world by Jesus. And it's not meant to be something we only see and experience in eternity. It's meant to be something we experience right now. I was thinking about this Advent series, and it's pretty neat. I don't think we've done a traditional Advent series looking at these themes and the history of our church. And I was thinking about how they come together, hope, 
peace and joy, they are ushered in by love. As we enter this final week of Advent, I want to ask you, my church family, I want to ask myself, what does this look like for us? Is there a neighbor that you need to get to know a little better? What does this kind of love look like for you and your spouse or your family or perhaps the extended family that you might see during these winter holidays? Maybe it's a coworker, a boss, even those we just drive next to every day on the road. This Christmas, let's remember where the whole idea of gifts come from, rooted in biblical love, action for the benefit of another. Let me just pray over us. God, we thank you that you first loved us. Um, I love that so moving that even friends just praying in the room over this morning are just um, moved to tears, God. And so we just ask that, um, I just ask, God, I sit under this teaching as, as I do with uh, my brothers and sisters here, God, and we just ask, what, what do you have for us? Show us. What does this love look like in our own lives? God, we need you. We need the power of your spirit to propel us forward to love you and to love others. And so we invite you, God, this morning, show us, Lead us in this way of love.